Good morning. Lovely to see you all on this rather brisk morning. My name is Paul, and I'm part of the preaching team here at Sutton Vineyard. And if this is your first time with us, then let me add an extra welcome. We're very pleased that you're here with us this morning. And another big hello to those of you joining us online or via the podcast. Never gets a shout-out, apart from when I'm doing a talk, the podcast. Whatever. So we're coming to the end of a series uh, called The Great Pursuit. And like Sam, who spoke some weeks ago, I have loved the name of this series. For me, it captures, it really captures a sense that I think many of us have, that being a Christian so often feels like a journey, like an adventure, and like we're in constant pursuit of something greater. But it can also feel tiring and difficult. Pursuing something valuable is rarely easy. And if we're not careful, we can end up weary and jaded. In fact, this morning's talk is called 24-7 Burnout, and that's something very close to my heart. At the back end of 2021, I was signed off from work for a couple of months with medical-grade burnout, we'll call it. I was no longer able to function as a husband, father, friend, colleague, or anything else for that matter. I'd lived in a heightened state of stress for too long, and the bill came due. It took a long time for me to get back on an even keel, and much of that involved rest and recuperation and reflection. But you don't need to have been signed off from work to know what I'm talking about. We know that life can be hard. It can take its toll and maybe even feel a bit broken at times. And that can be really hard to deal with. The question is, how do we navigate that well? There's a phrase that people sometimes use in churches. They say, Jesus has done it all. Maybe you've even heard people say that or something like it. It seems to imply that this life should somehow be easy or simple. Maybe it suggests we've got it all wrong if we're finding life hard, or that perhaps we just need to grin and bear it holding on for heaven. But that little word, it, in Jesus has done it all, is a bit dangerous. If that sentence were a building, it would be load-bearing. Because when I use the word it, to mean one thing, you might hear something else entirely. Jesus has done it all. What is the it exactly? And is there anything in there that can help us as we navigate our great pursuit? I think so, yeah. So what I want to do this morning is reframe that phrase, Jesus has done it all. And I want to try and bring some clarity to that little word, it. My prayer is that as we explore what the it is that Jesus has done, we will find hope and ultimately rest and peace. We'll rediscover a way of dealing with tiredness and burnout. And that's a gift not only for us, but it's one that we can share with the world around us too. We'll do this in three parts, because apparently that's a non-negotiable element of preaching. <laughs> Firstly then, it is an invitation to participate in God's plan. Secondly, it is a demonstration of how to participate well. Thirdly and finally, it is an offer to walk with us as we participate in God's plan. But before we get going properly, let me pray for us. Lord, in our hectic and busy lives, I pray that you would break through this morning. May we hear from you in a new way. Amen.
Okay, so firstly, it is an invitation to participate in God's plan. Now, generally, I'm a big fan of taking a step back from things and just trying to get a sense of the context and the overall landscape. I find that helpful before I get into the weeds and the nitty-gritty details. So that's where I think we should start this morning. Let me ask you a big question then. What makes for a successful life? What makes for a life well-lived? Take a moment and have a little ponder. For those listening on the podcast, Paul is letting people have a ponder. <laughs> what did you come up with, if anything? Maybe you didn't come up with anything, and that's okay. Perhaps, though, we figure that being a decent person, being honest, kind, and generous, or maybe we figure that holding down a job or being a good friend, those things make for a successful life. My kids once told me over dinner that their school friends want to be full-time YouTubers and influencers when they grow up. That, it seems, is their friends' ideas of a successful life. And hey, it might be. God places people in positions of influence at every level of society. But given we're in church, I suspect that at least someone came up with something that sounds a little like a successful life is following God's plan for me. And I would broadly agree. But that should also then make us ask, what is God's plan for me? Come to that, what is God's plan? To begin finding an answer for that, we need to remind ourselves of the business that God is in. If we look at the books of Genesis and Revelation, the literal bookends of our Bibles, we find the business that God is in. I suspect that many of us are probably familiar with the opening of Genesis, the creation story which details Adam and Eve's rebellion against God, the shattering of our relationship with him, and the destructive impact that had on God's creation. But if we look at the end of the Bible in Revelation, we see that God is far from content with that broken state of affairs. He has every intention of fully redeeming his creation. Like Genesis, Revelation is written in poetic and symbolic language. And while it can be particularly difficult to understand, it undeniably describes a future state where God has created a new heavens and a new earth. A new earth implies that many of the things we know and love from this earth, this creation, will be in some sense present and recognizable in the new earth, but in a redeemed, restored way. Revelation 21, 3-4, right at the back end of your Bibles, paints a remarkable picture of God's intimate involvement with this new earth. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This restorative work of creating a new heavens and a new earth unfolds in the pages of the Bible. And it's chiefly demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus, which is, amongst other things, God fully investing himself in the restoration of his creation and declaring to us his ultimate intentions. In time, we're told, the rest of creation will also be redeemed and restored. God, then, is in the restoration business. And he invites us to participate with him in exactly that today.
When Jesus died on the cross, when Jesus did it all, he healed the rift that opened up with Adam and Eve. We are now invited into God's restoration business, not as servants, but as sons and daughters of the living God. That means we can participate in God's plans with an authority given to us as family members. Now, sometimes we can get this a bit wrong, though, me included. And we try to make a God-shaped gap in our plans, rather than realizing there's a me-shaped gap in his plans. We are invited to play our part in his restoration of creation. And that, I think, is actually great news. Whatever your day-to-day -day looks like, whether you work in finance or in a school or in school finance, if you're a CEO or a managing director, an influencer, a teacher, nurse, programmer, a full-time parent, if you're retired or a student, whatever it is you do, you have the opportunity to be a restorer of God's creation. A kind word, a gentle nudge, a listening ear, a prayer, maybe even a firm boundary or two. Big and small, these are opportunities to express God's kingdom in creation and to be a part of what God is doing. To be a follower of Jesus, then, is to participate in God's master plan, one to redeem creation. Your part, though, in that is uniquely yours. You do you. It's a good thing. That's what he's asking you to be, you. But restoring creation, that's a big plan. That's a God-sized plan, actually. And for us, it means a lifelong mission and one of immeasurable worth, but it is not easy. And we shouldn't pretend that it is either. It is work. And we need help. We don't automatically know how to do any of the stuff we are supposed to do. We need a demonstration of how to live well. Secondly then, Jesus has done it all because it is a demonstration of how to participate well. For understanding how to live, how to participate, well, we always look to the person of Jesus. He is the reference, the standard, the template, the paradigm of precisely that. Jesus demonstrates how to live by God's Holy Spirit. And exploring what that means, though, well, that's also a lifetime's work. What Jesus taught and how he lived is endlessly interesting and valuable as we try to follow him. For our purposes this morning, though, I want us to now zoom right in to one area and to look at one moment relayed in Luke's gospel. It's in chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. And we're also going to take a little peek at Mark 2, 27, which relays the same moment in history, but it also gives us this additional insight. Luke 6, 1 and 2 to begin with. The words will appear above me if you don't have a Bible to hand. If you're listening on the podcast, grab a Bible. On a Sabbath... While he was going through the grain fields, his, that's Jesus's, disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders of the day, said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Okay, let's pick this one apart. First up, we have the Sabbath, which is the name given to the one day of the week where the Jewish people were supposed to take a break from their usual day-to-day -day activities. In fact, it was quite a beautiful thing. For generations, people would stop and put everything down on a Friday at sunset, and they would gather outside with friends 
and family. They look up at the stars. And when the first stars became visible, Sabbath would begin. They'd spend time with one another. They'd talk, eat, study God's word, pray, and reflect. I love this whole idea. Even as a massive introvert, I would be down for this. But somewhere along the way, the Sabbath had become distorted into something that was held over the people by the religious leaders. There were legal regulations about what you could or couldn't do on the Sabbath. And now while it's easy to paint the leaders, the Pharisees, as the baddies in all of this, they were very concerned about holiness and not offending God. In other words, I don't think it's as simple as good versus bad here. I think they were mistaken, yes. But I also think there was an attempt by at least some Pharisees to do what they believed was right and honorable. In any case, here some Pharisees are asking Jesus why his disciples are doing work on the Sabbath. It may seem to us hardly worth a mention, a bit of grain rubbing, but they took observing the Sabbath very, very seriously. Now Jesus answers by referring them to David, an Old Testament hero and the second king of Israel, someone to whom the Pharisees would have automatically accorded respect because of who he was. And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest, priests to eat, and also give it to those with him. David, you see, was on the run from the first king of Israel, Saul, along with some of his men. They'd gone into the, the temple and requested some of the holy bread from the priest there because they were so hungry. Bread that wasn't theirs to eat. Bread which was not lawful for them to eat. Just as bad as picking grain on Sabbath. Jesus asks the Pharisees why it is they have an issue with him and his disciples, but not David. He's challenging the Pharisees' sense of superiority, their judgmentalism and their inconsistency. Then we have this in Luke 6, verse 5. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, to decode this one quickly, Jesus very often refers to himself as the Son of Man, as a shorthand for being God's Messiah. It's a reference to the Old Testament book of Daniel. And here he's essentially saying, look, this is all my creation. I get to decide what's okay or not okay on the Sabbath. Now, you can imagine how well that was going to go down with the Pharisees. Spoiler, not very. This same moment is also captured in Mark's gospel, but it has this one additional line in it, which I love. Mark 2, 27. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Interesting. Let's keep going with Luke 6, 6 to 11. On another Sabbath, he, this is Jesus again, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the, on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. What a remarkable scene. Ah. Jesus is building on his previous conversation with the Pharisees. 
The implication from the last encounter was that if it was a choice between David and his men going hungry or them taking the holy bread from the temple, Jesus honestly seems okay with David and his men taking the bread. Compassion and mercy are more important than observing regulations. By the same token, he's not giving his disciples a ticking off for rubbing grain when they're hungry either. But with this second encounter, Jesus is raising the stakes. What, he says, if it's not quite as morally ambiguous, like requesting holy bread from the temple when you're hungry, or rubbing grain? What if it's a clear opportunity to do good, or by doing nothing to do harm? Jesus can heal the man, but it's the Sabbath. It's the no-go area for the Pharisees. To do anything that looks like work is more than just taboo. It's illegal. So Jesus heals the man, and the Pharisees are furious. Well, there's a lot there, isn't there? What are we to make of all of that? Three things, I think. First, the Sabbath was and still is a good thing. It's a necessary thing, actually. Participating in the world and in God's restoration plans is often very tiring. And God is saying that we need to take a break. One day in every seven, we can take a proper rest just like Jesus would have done. We can look at our place in the cosmos, spend time with loved ones, and with God. There's a tremendous amount of wisdom in what God is offering here. I know what from my own life that when I don't take a break and when I don't get this right, the blast radius, if you will, is far bigger than just me. When I was signed off with burnout, it impacted a lot of people around me. They were loving and they were generous and they can't possibly know what that meant to me. But the fact remains, it wasn't just about me. We can be quite used to thinking in individualistic terms. My job, my house, my goals, my plans, my faith, my God. But we live with one another. And sometimes the most caring thing we can do for others is to first take care of ourselves. Love your neighbor as yourself. Some of us need to know that it's okay to love ourselves and to make space for that. I've already discussed how God cares about creation, and as part of creation, he cares about you and about me. It matters that we are healthy for ourselves, yes, but also for others. Second, we also need to see that the Sabbath is a gift. God wants us to flourish, not flounder. He's for us, not against. This, I think, is really important to see, and it's where the Pharisees were making their misstep. The Pharisees believed that doing anything on the Sabbath would anger God. And that meant they couldn't see it for what it truly is, a gift from the God who loves his people and who wants the very best for them. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It exists because God wants us to have it as a gift. It's not about controlling or tripping people up. It's about love. Third, we need to see how flexible the Sabbath truly is. When we explore where Sabbath comes from and how it's been expressed in history, we see a range of things that people have done and do with their Sabbath rest. Spend time together, eat, talk, walk, pray, reflect, and so on. And much as it would be nice to have an approved checklist of what Sabbath must look like, there really isn't one. Exactly what your Sabbath rest looks like is probably quite different to what mine looks like. Our roles in God's plan are as unique as we are. And what our Sabbath rest looks like will be unique 
too. Some people, as one example, love taking a walk in nature to hear from God. I can't think of anything worse, personally. (laughs) Terrible idea. But if I go for a run, then I can usually find physical rest. And after that, I find it easier to be still with God. If we're stuck on what this might look like for us, we can ask around, particularly in small groups. We can ask others what their tactics are and, frankly, shamelessly steal their very best thinking. You are not on your own. This is a team sport. Now, we might need to get creative about things depending on what life looks like for us. In fact, you may remember some weeks ago that Libby talked about John Wesley's mother placing an apron over her head to indicate to her rather significant number of children, eight of them, I believe, (laughs) that she was spending time with God and ought not to be interrupted. But if Sabbath is flexible and somewhat up to us, we might wonder, are there at least some guiding principles for how we might want to spend that time? Yes. Yes, there are. In his second encounter with the Pharisees, Jesus asks them this question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? That's not really a question of specifics, like whether or not to heal someone with a withered hand. Not sure about you, but miraculously healing people's hands hasn't exactly been on my radar of late. No, this is a question of principles. God invites us to rest. Yes, absolutely. But not to the total exclusion of all else. If we have a clear opportunity to help, build up, or do good in the world, why ignore it? So there's one principle at least. Doing good? Good. Another one is giving Sabbath a sense of other to it. Now we can see this element of other when we read that creation narrative in Genesis 1. You may remember that the seventh day God rests, and it stands out because God chooses to rest from his creative work. It is different. It is special. It is other. For many of us, Sunday is a psychological anchor in the week. We come here to Sutton Vineyard and spend time with one another in a way that makes Sundays unlike the rest of our week. Sunday is marked out as special, and other things are designed to fit around Sunday. And when we're here, we know we'll be free to sing worship songs, to listen, reflect, to pray, and be prayed for. Now, sure, we can do those things, all of them, at other times too, but Sundays are a special, extended version of that. And when we're here, we are actively choosing not to be somewhere else doing something else. So making space for the Sabbath aspect of other in our week, good. The last principle I'm going to suggest to you this morning, and one that I personally think is the most important, is centering Sabbath around our relationships and primarily our relationship with God. Oftentimes things like TV, video games, social media and so on provide physical rest, enjoyment and entertainment or connection with others. And those are generally good things because we need to look after our bodies and relationships and because, frankly, it's good to have fun. But we also need to look after our souls. And there's only one way to do that, by spending quality time with God. So finally, Jesus has done it all 
because it is an offer to walk with us as we participate in God's plan. When we walk this life, we don't have to walk alone. As followers of Jesus, we not only have other Christians around us, we also have God's Holy Spirit living within us. Just before he heads to the cross, Jesus tells his disciples that when he goes, he will send the Holy Spirit to come and walk alongside them and, by extension, to walk alongside us. John 16, verse 7. You may know this one. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, I've talked about this before, but that word helper is one of several options for the original Greek word parakletos, paraklete sometimes we say. It literally means alongside speaker, someone who walks with you and speaks, provides input to your life. Now, we could also use a word like comforter or advocate instead of helper, or perhaps in more modern language, something like life coach would convey at least part of its meaning. When we make time for Sabbath, and critically, when we make extended time for our relationship with God, we're opening ourselves up to the one who loves us the most and who wants the absolute best for us. He will speak truth to us by his Holy Spirit, a truth that we are loved, valued, special, and that we have a purpose and a meaning our individual roles in God's plan are as unique as we are. And he wants us to be the best versions of ourselves as we take part in it. We can only get to the best versions of ourselves by being open to the transforming work of God's Spirit. That's what Julian was sharing a couple of weeks ago in his talk, The Imitation Game. If you missed it, watch it online or the podcast. When we stop... And take time to reflect. God will meet with us. He will speak to us. And he will care for our souls if we'll let him. He'll also offer a little course correction if we've gotten lost or bamboozled along the way. He's already invested so much in this creation. He's not ambivalent to any of this, to any of us. Whatever it is our souls need, there's only one place we're going to find it. With our Heavenly Father. Okay, one last thing I want to share with you this morning is a word, and it's the word intentional. It's something I've felt God pointing me towards as I've been preparing this talk. To live with intention, purpose, and direction is so important. And we may assume that to do that means sorting out our jobs or our families first, but living in God's upside-down kingdom often means doing the very opposite of what our defaults would suggest. If you're able to, then, maybe start here. Be intentional about Sabbath, about the rest, and work backwards from there. When we align ourselves with God first, the other stuff, work, relationships, and so on, flows from that, not the other way around. But being intentional applies to the rest of our week, too, not just the Sabbath. During my time off with burnout, I was gifted the rare opportunity to assess a lot of things, and in this case, mostly the things that had gone wrong. How exactly had I burned out? I mean, I love my job. I do. I get to program computers every day. Nerd. <laughs> and yet somehow I found myself at my desk, crying and unable to type out a single word. 
I hadn't just missed Sabbath rest. I was also suffering from the fact that the rest of my week was overwhelming. Let me put it to you by way of analogy. If we took a heavy coffee drinker, someone who drinks coffee, four or five strong coffees a day, say, and then on one day of the week, we entirely deprived them of coffee, what would happen? Yeah, some of you are laughing because you know. We'd actually cause them more harm than good. And to be fair, we'd probably want to be in the next county (laughs) rather than anywhere near them. It can be the same with life. We live in a world where we can fill our days with endless activities, endless stimulants and stimulation, and we can bounce from one thing to the next in the endless to-do list. If most of our week is hectic, and if big portions of our week see us riding a dopamine high, then Sabbath rest may not only be difficult to achieve, it may actually prove painful. Now, that doesn't mean that resting is the problem here. It just probably means that we need to be intentionally balancing our whole week so that we can make the most of Sabbath. But if our weeks are hectic, then trying to change too much at once might be overwhelming and counterproductive. Rather than like our coffee drinker going from hero to zero, lots of coffee to none, it's problematic if changes are not managed well. It's generally healthier to adjust things gradually and intentionally and with God. So how about this? What is one thing we could intentionally change in order to enjoy Sabbath more? Maybe in a while, we can check in and see if there's anything else we can do to improve matters. Small changes have a wonderful habit of stacking up over time. Okay, let me finish up. If I could ask Claire and the rest of the worship team to come back up, that would be great. Sabbath, eh? Hmm. It's a word I think many of us have heard over the years, but it's interesting to come back and just offer this reminder, I suppose. It's a gift. It's a gift from the one who loves us the most. He offers it because he knows we need it and because he wants us to be the best versions of ourselves as we participate in his restoration plans. We don't have to accept it, of course, because it's a gift. But just know that God is offering it precisely because he knows that this life is hard and that resting with him and with his family is one of the greatest blessings we can experience. He knows you. He loves you. And he wants the very best for you. Not only you, but the people around you and the people around them all the way to the edges of creation. Whatever our soul rest, our Sabbath looks like, we should consider how we might give it a sense of other and how we might center it on our relationships with God and with his family. Given how busy life can be, we'll probably also need to be intentional about making space for it and for our whole weeks come to that if we want to make the most of it. Today then, like every Sunday, God's invitation to all of us is not necessarily easy, but it is simple. Stop. Rest. Reflect and spend time with him and his family. 